Welcome to the Road Home Podcast with Ethan Nickturn. Join Ethan as he and his guests explore the Buddhist path as it relates to art, culture, activism, politics, Western psychology, and more. If you'd like to support Ethan's podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Ethan. All right. So hi, everyone. This is Ethan McTurn. This is the Road Home Podcast. Um, I'm really happy and excited uh, for the conversation ahead today. Um, my guest today is a uh, friend, uh, meditator, and author of the new book that's just out, Ancestor, Trouble, uh, A Reckoning, and a Reconciliation, uh, Maud Newton. So Maud, welcome to the Road Home Podcast. Thanks, Ethan. You forgot to mention that you're also sometimes my teacher. Well, that's that's that <laughs> that feels less relevant. <laughs> um, so yeah, so um, you know, I usually ask people to uh, talk about their origin story with meditation, but I, I feel like uh, so much of of Buddhist thought and so much of what feels relevant right now. Are these questions of lineage and ancestry, um, and that's what your book, uh, which is this amazingly researched and developed, is a personal story. It's a story of our kind of collective uh, experiencing of ancestry and lineage. Um, I feel like maybe talking about and and you wrote this book for nine years. Um, maybe talking about the origin story of the book first might maybe weave in sort of your experience as a, as a meditator or how Buddhist or Buddhist thought might intersect with this work. Cause I have a lot of thoughts about ancestry and lineage from a Buddhist standpoint, but how did this book come about? Yeah. So um, I come from a family that's pretty intense, you know, a lot of really good stuff there, but a lot of dysfunctions personal dysfunction, um, you know, and also sort of a history in my family of participation and a lot of the really serious harms that um, lie at the foundation of this country, including slavery and uh, my ancestors being the enslavers and um, colonialism. So, um, yeah, so I would tell friends stories for many years about my family and they would say, oh my God, you have to write a memoir. But I think if you've had a certain kind of traumatic childhood, you don't always necessarily want to spend years writing about it. So for a long time, I was really resistant. It sort of seemed like I would be kind of like locking myself in a closet with the dysfunctions of my childhood, if I did that. Um, but as I sort of started looking backward into my family, had a lot of therapy, a lot of therapy, um, started meditating, um, I became more interested in the ways that all of these patterns were sort of coming down through the family. And um, my agent asked me if I wanted to write a book about this after I wrote a piece that was published in Harper's. And I said, oh, you know, maybe. 
but you know, in the future. And she said, well, just think about what it might look like if you did want to write it now, which was a really great exercise because I realized my whole life I've been fascinated by these questions of inheritance. Um, and, you know, in art, in music, and in, in everything, it's sort of like the thing that I gravitate toward. And so I realized I wanted to write about my family, but also about all these larger questions, genealogy, genetic genealogy. At the time, the idea of epigenetics and um, intergenerational trauma was just sort of coming to the fore. So that generational wealth, racism, colonialism, <laughs> um, you know, and then kind of veering into um, spirituality, which was the part that kind of scared me. Um, I have a lot of religious extremism in my family, so I wasn't really sure where that would take me, but I was also excited about it. Yeah. 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 So, um, just in terms of the, the trauma, it, it does seem, um, you didn't want to lock yourself in the closet with, with your personal traumas. You do talk about, um, your parents, and grandparents. Um, uh, but you did, you do have a way in this book of kind of weaving in your personal story of, uh, the family that you personally related to not going back four or five or 10 generations. And then weaving that in with sort of our larger, I don't know if we want to say obsession, but with like ancestry or one of the things you did was you talked a lot about um, the industry of looking that's grown of looking into one's ancestry. Like, so I did 23andme.com, but I never thought about it. Like, Oh, this is like capital. This is like a, um, this is an industry. I didn't realize how large the industry of things like 23andme. I just thought it was like an interesting way to make connections, but um, it, it was fascinating because it feels like, uh, I always think like in America, we or in the United States, we often want to forget our past, but we're also simultaneously obsessed with it. So that's that's sort of interesting. Like we don't have any sense of history. Uh, we don't you know, it's not like Europe where you walk through cities and there's like these town squares or these amazing, you know, um, architectural structures that tell you, oh, this is what this place was like 500 years ago, like we have McDonald's, you know, in our day. Um, so I want, like, can you talk a little bit to like our simultaneous obsession with the past and like not knowing much about the past? Yeah. Um, so since the enlightenment in the West, in you know, there's been this kind of notion that like, well, we don't have to be serfs because our ancestors were serfs and therefore our ancestors and their history don't really matter. And of course, it's great not to be um, required to be something in particular because that's what your ancestors were. But at the same time, I think we can all see that our ancestors very directly and very literally affect who we are and what is possible for us, starting with our very bodies. So, um, yeah, I mean, the industry that's grown up and all the privacy considerations that I get into and all the ways it can be misused, I think is really, um, it's, 
In my opinion, it's really motivated in large part by a kind of spiritual yearning more than a desire for fact. Like, of course, we want to know the facts, especially if we're, if we have a medical problem that we're trying to understand, or we, you know, are cut off from our roots because of adoption or the Holocaust or slavery, you know, then, so we're trying to find out facts, but we're also yearning for some deeper understanding of ourselves and our place in the world. And, the ways that we connect to something larger. And so this sort of like individualistic Western way of being in the world is I think really dissatisfying at a soul level for people. And, you know, it's the more that I've thought about all of this and felt about all of this and, you know, all the years I spent working on the book, it just came to seem so sort of ironic to me that we have this notion that if, you know, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it, but we think about that on a large scale, you know, like, oh God, we don't want to replicate the fall of Rome, um, which of course we don't, but it's, you know, there's, there's no more intimate or more important connection to history for each of us than our ancestors and what they did. Um, and there's sort of no more important way of looking at a culture at large than sort of like looking at the individual decisions that people made that led to, um, yeah, to where we are. So I think we're really trying to understand ourselves in this country. Um, as you say, we don't have like monuments that go back 500 years. And unfortunately, most of the history of 500 years ago across this land has been eradicated by people like my ancestors. So, you know, obviously like the indigenous people and many traditions live on, um, but, you know, we have devalued the actual history of this land. And so we're just kind of unmoored and searching for something. Mm. Yeah. And also because the history of this land is so painful and it seems like so much of that is what's in right-wing or conservative politics is uh you know being um attempted to be you know erased but swept under the rug would probably be a better analogy for it because we haven't really reconciled with genocide you know or or you know being on uh someone else's land that we killed and we haven't reconciled with having what, you know, experts call the most brutal system of slavery that ever existed, right? And there's a sense of like, yeah, but that happened a long time ago. You know, one one of the things that I was thinking of as I was reading about your your searching through your, uh, to go back more generations to pre-Civil War uh, relatives was, so I, I have, I'm half from the South too. My, my mother grew up in, in, in a small town, Arkansas, but I was feeling like, oh, well, what saves me is I think every, almost everybody that I know of uh, was a German or French uh, immigrant uh, in the like 1890s. That's, that's my understanding of where. uh, So it's, I mean, it's interesting to say like, well, then uh, they were Europeans who came over after slavery was abolished. 
And I found myself thinking like, is, is that really different? Does that like actually change the, the karma if you became an American white person after, after slavery? You know, um, I mean, obviously I don't have, I don't think in my, you know, bones or my genes of like, oh, okay, like this, uh, they, they did these things directly, but we all still kind of um, uh, benefited slash didn't benefit from a karmic standpoint of uh, the the results of that, you know, in terms of American life, et cetera. So do you have any thoughts about that? Like about like white friends who did not come from uh, families that were here long, long enough ago, but if they had been here, probably would have participated in those same systems. Yeah, I definitely do. I do think there's a difference, you know, um, obviously there's a difference between being someone who enslaved people and being someone who did not enslave people. Um, but yeah, I mean, the systemic racism, particularly at, at that time in the 1890s, um, but continuing today, um, it really underlies our whole society. Um, and, you know, in one way or another, um, we've all been complicit at some point in our lives, and even if not knowingly, um, and we've all, those of us who are white, have benefited from our status and privilege as white people. Um, you know, and I think a lot of times if we look back into our stories, I mean, my ancestors have been on these lands for a very long time. I The earliest arrival or the most recent arrival I could find was from 1803. So, um, wow. You know, it's, uh, yeah, there's a real history here for better and worse. Um, but, you know, a lot of us, when we look back, we can see that our ancestors made certain decisions that perpetuated slavery, sometimes more consciously than others. Uh, I mean, uh, racism, rather, systemic racism, not slavery. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we're all implicated. Um, and I think it's really important for all of us to really look at our role and our family's role. Um, but those of us who whose families actively participated in those harms, I think we have a real duty to step forward when we know about them and say, you know, my ancestors did this. My ancestors participated in this. You know, I find that a lot of people, myself included, can sometimes have this feeling when looking at the enormity of systemic racism, like, well, what what can I do? You know, um, and so I would encourage people who come from that history to really begin to think about, you know, helping to create a mass movement of people coming forward and saying, my ancestors participated in this. And, and, you know, here, here's how I feel about that. And here are stories that I know. And I think these conversations, you know, we don't need to go find our Black friends and talk to them about this history, you know, unless they want to talk to us. They, they know about this history. Right. We need to go to fellow white people 
and say, hey, you know, look, my ancestors did this and this is how I feel and this is real. Yeah. How would, I mean, uh, just one more thought on this, vein. How would you respond to somebody who says, you know, I'm putting this in kind of Buddhist terminology, but like, I didn't do that. That's not my karma. Like, it's awful. I have feelings about it. But what am, what am I actually supposed to do if this is a person who wasn't me, who maybe shared, you know, a, a small percentage of my genetic coding, who lived at a different time? Like, how, how am I even supposed to take responsibility for something that I wasn't here for? Sure. Well, I mean, in a very sort of practical and literal way, just coming forward and speaking about that, um, you know, is a way of circumventing these laws that are trying to prevent people from talking about history. Because then it becomes not me lecturing you um, about our society. It becomes me sharing a personal story with you about something that my family did um, and how I feel about that. And I would encourage people to really be very tender and really, really become familiar with their feelings of avoidance and their feelings of wanting to disavow. Um, Because it's true, I did not enslave people. Um, I am not personally responsible for that. But the immense privilege that I have um, because my ancestors did that is undeniable. And even, you know, in the decades after, you know, um, the Civil War, you know, and even in the decades before, some of my ancestors were very poor, Um, you know. So it's not, it, it doesn't mean that, like, you had to be a rich person. And if you, you know, it's, it's, it's just important to acknowledge the reality of this, to really feel our way into it, and to really just kind of speak about it on a personal level, mm-hmm. rather than a sort of lecturing theoretical level, in my yeah. opinion. It does seem like that's a huge part about how defensiveness in general works. I mean, and, and what you're naming is just a basic uh, mindfulness practice of noticing a tendency to avoid and trying to stay with something that's uncomfortable, but absolutely, it does yeah. seem that there's um, a, a basic pattern of um, if you're naming something, it's like you're um, provoking conflict rather than just naming, Hey, this is, this is true. This is real. Like, so it it does seem like that's part of what we're up against is that kind of collective defensiveness, right? Yeah. And I think the more that I can say, you know, in the book, I share letters that, um, you know, my great aunt wrote about my grand, my great grandparents, and they ran a plantation um, in the mid 1900s. And, um, you know, so I'm just sharing stories. This is long after the Civil War, obviously, but there's still a lot of really racist stuff in there. Um, it doesn't mean that I hate my great grandparents. Um, you know, I'm sure that some of my family members would prefer that I not share this, but you know, that that impulse to protect 
that impulse to sort of like gerrymander what we tell about our families so that we're kind of leaving out those things, you know, that, that we don't really want to think about or acknowledge those a lot of times they're the real really in in this context the things that we need to be bringing forward I think not in a spirit of hating our ancestors but in a spirit of saying you know this this is real and and this is how it manifested in my family where where do you think I mean you know you go into um a, a very difficult kind of personal experiences and personal relationships, you know, especially, you know, with, with the relatives that came before you that were alive in your life. Um, But something I've been thinking about just with people who we figure out have really confused patterns or do very harmful things, where's the role for complexity? You know, I mean, I, uh, the, the times that I've written more in a memoir pattern right my last book the dharma the princess bride i talk a lot about my grandfather and step-grandmothers don't talk a lot about but uh suicide and um you know it's interesting because i with my grandparents especially on my dad's side i had very good relationships but there was clearly after they passed away a lot of complexity came forth um not that they were um i mean that side everybody's an ashkenazi jew Thank you, 23andMe, for uh, letting me know that uh, and making money off of it. Um, But uh, that's one of the things I've been thinking about in all these movements that are happening right now is it doesn't seem like there's a lot of um, understanding or allowance for human complexity, that that a person can can do both harmful things and in other areas, be a really great person, you know? And I feel like there's different ways of looking at this. Like we might look at the psychological notion of compartmentalization or like the Jungian shadow or something, but it it does feel like a lot of the conversations to me, this is just my editorializing. uh, And I'm not at all here talking about uh, slavery or, or genocide. I'm talking about just our relatives who were, you know, problematic people in their interpersonal relationships. It doesn't feel like our conversations about these things have, have gotten to the level of nuance about like, how do we hold both this person did a lot of good and caused a lot of harm? Yeah. I have found spiritual practices around ancestors really helpful with that. Um, I think that's right. And obviously when we're looking at something like slavery or we're looking at something like genocide, um, you know, as you say, that's not a time where we want to introduce nuance, even though there may be nuance in individual stories, what we want to do is acknowledge, um, in my opinion, that those things happened, um, you know, and, and, you know, maybe in our own families, we want to talk about, um, you know, about the nuances around, around that in our particular families. But yeah, I mean, one thing that's been really interesting for me is to realize that in, even in European countries, there was a tradition of um, ancestral spirituality. And there was a notion that the 
um, state of the dead mattered for the state of the living. So there was a notion that, um, you know, we these days we might talk about it in terms of wellness or we might think about it in terms of sort of like elevation. Um, but, you know, if your ancestors did terrible things or were a terrible person or were a complex person in life, or if your ancestors were wonderful, 100% perfect, you would perform the same rituals. You would perform the same rituals of respect. You would perform the same rituals of returning to the grave. You would contemplate your ancestors and your relationship to them as continuing. And to me, that really opens up a whole different way of looking at it, whether or not we believe that we're actually sort of engaging with an ancestor or we're imaginatively engaging with our notion of an ancestor. It's really helpful to kind of think like, oh, this isn't a static person who died who I have to um defend or not defend you know this is a, a sort of like complex person and we can engage with them almost the way we would with a living person um in terms of our sort of feelings about them um yeah. and i've found it to be helpful to sort of even like imagine ancestors before the bad thing whatever that bad thing may be you know, so in my case, imagining ancestors who predated slavery um, and imagining that those ancestors would also view this as a problem in the line, um, you know, has been helpful to me as either a spiritual or psychological exercise, depending on how you look at it. Yeah, yeah. So I would love to, to shift gears for a while and, and talk about, you know, spiritual approach to ancestry and in buddhist terms this also makes me think of the concept of lineage you know which is incredibly important and that's it's interesting studying things like tibetan or zen buddhism there's a lot of times part of the ceremony you know in chants and things is to invoke the so-called masters of of the lineage you know and sometimes in daily chants like there's in tibetan buddhism the kagyu lineage there's a whole like sort of named lineage of masters or or uh i, I remember rev um angel kyoto williams talking about a chant in the soto zen tradition where you name the 72 patriarchs of the lineage and said isn't it interesting they were all patriarchs but um uh and, you know, a lot of times it feels kind of distant because you may have read a few of the stories, sort of spiritual biographies of the, or hagiographies of these masters. And some of them you can relate to. And some of them you're like, oh, that's not really my, this feels so ancient and distant. But it's interesting because I think in a lot of ways, the mindfulness movement kind of misses this notion of lineage. Like there's there's actually a lot of mindfulness and wellness influencers who can't even say like where, what the origin source, I mean, a lot of them can, but a lot of them can't even say sort of what the origin source of their lineage is, which it can be complex. It can be multiple influences, but there, there's an aspect in Buddhism of the lineage kind of keeping you honest because it keeps you anchored to like, I'm representing more than just myself. But the other, the other aspect is I think, and this gets to it with the ceremonies, there, there's a sense of love and support 
like that you actually in Tibetan Buddhism visualize the lineage kind of giving you energy, giving you awakened energy. And so, and Lama Rod Owens talks about this in his, in his work on Buddhism about you relying on the ancestors, you know, like as a, as a support structure. So, um, I don't know. It doesn't feel like that's always available to us as American white people to look when we don't know our history. And also when we uh, have these really problematic histories, as you're naming in in ancestor trouble. So how do what do you think about the relationship between like uh, your work and, and lineage or ancestry as a as a power source of one's own wisdom? Yeah, well, I will say that um, studying Buddhism with you, I don't consider myself a Buddhist and I'm not a very good student. Oh, Um, shut up. (laughs) I I like the term Buddhist, if that's okay. (laughs) Yeah. But I, yeah, I feel like that sort of, um, opened up avenues for some of this other work that I've been drawn to. Um, and I love the idea of acknowledging lineages, you know, I, and I sort of think of it as a companion to something like land acknowledgement, you know, anytime we can acknowledge, um, you know, a, a history that connects to where we are, the more kind of grounded we as sort of rootless Americans, you know, particularly those of us um, whose ancestors have been here for a while and are, you know, white people, um, you know, the more grounded we can feel. But yeah, I mean, as I was saying earlier, kind of, um, Imagining or relating to, or however you want to put it, um, you know, lineages that extend beyond the trouble uh, has been really powerful for me. So, you know, I've I've worked with a teacher to acknowledge um, Larissa Noonan, who, like me, comes out of a really fundamentalist background, um, and. You know, so so she's been sort of helpful with this. But yeah, there's a notion of kind of connecting with or imagining, however you want to put it, an, an ancestor on a particular line, very far back, someone who is elevated or well, who's not mired in this problem and is sort of connected in a positive sense to the people who came before. And then there's a sense of, working your way down, really having this, this well sort of imagined or whatever ancestor doing the work for you of sort of healing that line so that then there's a sense of the ancestors in that entire line being a source of support rather than a source of being cut off and having done this harm that we we have this relationship to. And, I, you know, I recognize that it can sound um, a bit inaccessible and out there to certain people. But again, you know, if you imagine it, it, you know, I approached it in a sort of experimental way, I would say. I was like, well, I don't know. 
you know, I've spent most of my adult life avoiding um, any kind of extreme spirituality or really any <laughs> spirituality other than Buddhism. Um, and yeah, but I've found it really powerful. And something that another teacher said to me, uh, Taya Ma Sher said to me was, you know, why should we imagine that what we might envision would be different, you know, sort of independent from our ancestors' legacies in us, um, which again, you know, is debatable, but I, but I found it sort of helpful um, and leaning into these other ways of thinking about family and finding support, even on these lines that seemed very troubled. Um, it's, it's really been transformative because I've been able, you know, with my mindfulness background and my many years of therapy to really look at my family and see more clearly the negative patterns and see the strengths more clearly as well. Did you, through the, through the long process of writing this book, like when you started writing this book, did, did you have a, I mean, obviously when you write a book, you want to write a book, right? And, and I know you had, uh, you know, a, a big literary blog. So I also imagine people were telling you for a while, like write a book, you know, and, and this, I, I, my guess is this was the subject matter that really called to you, but did you have a sense of like the personal journey you were looking to go through with it i mean i know the the subtitle of the book is a reckoning and a reconciliation uh so did you have a sense of like here's what to use a you know you use the word i always wonder what we actually mean when we say this what a kind of how this book could be a healing journey for you or was it just like i have something to express and i'm really interested in this and this is what i want to write about i think the answer to all of that is yes um yeah, even the things that sort of contradict each other. Um, I was very interested in the spiritual aspect of it, and I was very kind of suspicious of it and afraid of it at the same time. Um, you know, when I was a kid, my mom started a church in our living room, and it was like a holy roller casting out demons, um, speaking in tongues kind of situation. It was pretty intense and scary. And my lawyer father was not into it. Um, but he was also, he was a Presbyterian, also very kind of religious in a certain sort of way. Um, so I reacted to my background by avoiding religion, declaring myself a fervent agnostic, and being terrified that I would have a religious conversion and start a church in my living room. Um, when I started to approach this ancestor spirituality, I did it in a very, in a way that's very familiar for me, lots of reading, lots of deep research, <laughs> You know, um, and I think people who are interested in this will be like, awesome, you've done the work. And people who aren't, you know, I've seen a couple of reviews on Goodreads where people are like, you know, a little bit of this goes a long way. Um, but I really like re went into it. But I was conscious of not wanting to just approach it from a sociological perspective. So 
at a certain point, I had to figure out how I was going to access this. And I didn't feel comfortable for myself going into the ancestor traditions of a people who are not the people I come from. You know, I'm not saying that it's wrong for anyone else to do so, but because of my particular ancestral harms, I was like, you know, I'm going to try to find my way to this as a white person of European origin while benefiting from the wisdom of many people who are not um, from that background. And so, yeah, I mean, I, um, when I first went to an intensive, it was with the organization Ancestral Medicine. um, And I didn't work directly with the guy who founded that, but I have worked with some of the teachers uh, who trained with him. And um, yeah, I really wasn't sure what to expect. And I was kind of scared. I was even scared like, God, what if I open some kind of like demonic thing? You know, I, I really didn't know what was what I was doing. But um, yeah, so I just sort of approached it experimentally, deciding to see what came up. Um, and it ended up just being really powerful for me. And I, I began to feel like I had access to this very personal kind of divinity, for lack of a better word, um, that, you know, that the people I came from had done these really terrible things, but there, there were also these different kinds of wisdom and power that I had access to. And and that was really great. So I didn't, I think that I wanted to end up where I ended up when I started writing the book, but I had no idea how I would get there. And I didn't really at the outset view it as a, um, as a healing journey. Exactly. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's writing a book is it's interesting because for me, it's kind of grueling, you know, it's, uh, but it's something I have to do. So it's, I, I, overall, I think it adds to my sanity for sure, but it doesn't, it's not, it's not like it feels like a good, you know, I mean, meditation doesn't always feel that way either, but it doesn't feel like a good massage or something like sometimes it's just like, all right, well, I, I dug through the rock a little bit more. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it definitely wasn't like a chill sort of like, Ooh, now I'm going to like sit down and have some fun today at my computer. It was definitely a lot of intense research, a lot of intense soul searching, um, a lot of intense reckoning. Originally I had imagined the subtitle would be a reckoning and an embrace, Mm. which feels accurate but you know I didn't want to suggest that I was embracing the harms um so yeah um and I thought a lot of actually about your book while I was writing um you know it's and and about your grandparents too um I did I, I wrote a little bit about your book just briefly in there but um yeah, I feel like we maybe approach writing from a, a similar kind of perspective in a way. But it's also, I want to circle back to, you know, it's this this question of using spirituality related to ancestry. I, you know, one thing I, I mean, not everybody has the intense fundamentalist experience of their mother, you know, starting a, a, a church in the living room 
Um, but I do find, especially in the in the um, United States, in the Western world, a lot of people who are interested in Buddhism or at least interested in mindfulness practices come from feeling repelled having grown up, usually in, in one of the sects of American Christianity, uh, where there is more dogma. Um, uh, you know, people will often say, well, I'm interested in Buddhism, but I don't want to join anything or do anything to woo because I'm a recovering Catholic is a term I hear personally quite a lot. But there is, it's interesting because, and this is a larger conversation about sort of the adoption of mindfulness in Buddhism in the West, that um, people, um, they like Buddhism because it is more scientific than other, you know, spiritual traditions. I mean, especially, I, I think if you go back to the style of the, of the um, founder of the tradition, um, it's been more religious at various times through history, but there's this access line. It's a contemplative, it's scientific, it, it's psychological. Um, so people can find a doorway into the practices, not feeling like anybody's going to ask them to um, do something on faith with some invisible situation. But at the same time, Buddhism does, it's adopted so many different shamanic or ceremonial or, or ways of looking, bringing that psychology to look at the invisible world. And it does feel like at a certain point to work with one's ancestry, you know, because it is in our DNA, because it isn't, it is, and, you know, it's the jet in at its best. It's what I like to call your lineage is like the Jedi's in the forest, you know, the, the force ghosts, you know, at its very best. So to get in there and do that work, it does feel like you need more, um, medicinal indigenous or shamanic or spiritual approaches right so that that seems like that's a big leap for people is to bring back in some transformed sense of how can i relate to ceremony or um etc absolutely and i you know part of my continuing discussion within myself about buddhism is sort of my you know how much it's transformed my life um, for the better and how much I don't know still about the tradition and the extent to which I have a sort of obligation, you know, what is my obligation to this tradition, um, which has been so personally helpful to me and which has this rich history that, you know, my people don't come from and, um, so that's that's definitely a question that's really alive for me uh, whenever I think about my meditation practice. Um, one thing that I've found really useful um, in doing the kind of spiritual work that I do is a, a kind of doorway was the idea of breathing in, um, you know, harmful or negative things and then breathing out. Um, I feel like, you know, there's a real relationship with that kind of um, imaginative or spiritual work, however you want to look at it, um, that it really feels connected to this other work that I'm doing. Um, You know, and yeah, I mean, for me, sort of, overcoming my resistance. I consider myself now a recovering agnostic. Um, 
And, <laughs> you know, and I consider myself kind of a very inept and beginning practitioner of sort of earth kinship and, um, you know, for a lack of hopefully not too, hopefully it's not too appropriating to say sort of more indigenous earth honoring ancestor honoring traditions. And um, yeah, and, and sort of also doing this work for me and sort of having this sense of connection back through time, through thousands and thousands of years to ancestors makes me feel more connected to the earth somehow um, in a more kind of grounded way uh, and less separated from it. I feel like I've veered away from your question though. So if you want to like gently shepherd me back in, that's cool. (laughs) Oh yeah. No, just, just uh, I don't think you veered away from it at all, but you know, podcasts are about kind of taking things and going in our own directions. so no, I, the, the, the question was just about, you know, how to find, uh, refind uh, a genuine relationship to spirituality that has some of these qualities of reconciliation or at least being in dialogue with our ancestry. Like, you know, thinking of some of the things you named, like even something like, uh, Dia de los Muertos in the, in the Mexican, you know, tradition, which is such an amazing, um, it's so much better than I hate to say this, but it's so much better than Halloween. You know, um, I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying that, but because it's so spiritual, you know, I mean, Halloween's a great way to connect with your friends and children, but like, uh, like, so do, I mean, it feels like we have to rediscover our spirituality, right? We can't be sheerly scientific when we're talking about our ancestry. Yeah. And, you know, for people who might be sort of like curious about this, but not really kind of um, interested in or ready to to go there, um, Jung is a really interesting um, part of my entry into this. I am not a union. I find a lot of his ideas really frustrating. particularly his ideas about male and female and all of that. I'm just like, Oh, get out of here with that shit. (laughs) You know, at the same time, I have come to sort of view you differently. I have a book called lament of the dead. That's a sort of discussion um, between two Jung scholars of his, the red book. And they talk about how, you know, the dead were very important to you. And also, arguably, he wasn't putting forward his kind of interpretations and visions as like the guidebook for all of us. He was saying, we all need that. You know, we all need to sort of relate with our ancestors and their legacies and their unfinished business and all of that like we can't really move forward until we acknowledge the the dead and the sort of like pain that they felt and the pain that they inflicted well um this might be a good place to leave off but i want to give a big plug because maude newton's uh uh book ancestor trouble ancestor trouble a reckoning and the reconciliation uh, is out uh, as of this week, and uh, it's 
Uh, it's not just me uh, interviewing a friend. Uh, the book has gotten many starred reviews and is on several really major lists of anticipated books of the month and year. And uh, it's one of those nonfiction books that I really get a lot out of where there's a very personal quality mixed with really learning something. Um, so I really want to uh, highly, highly uh, recommend it. Um, and I, I found it to be what I like to call stealth dharma, um, where something's not not overtly dharmic, but is is about something that we all really need to know more about. Um, so please, everybody go pick up Ancestor Trouble. I'm going to recommend you get an independent bookseller, please. And um, that's something I care about. Um, and uh, Maud, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Ethan, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And I love talking with you. I can't wait until you have some in-person um, weekend retreats again. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. yeah. Let's, let's, and, and, and let's make prayers for, for a, a stable world and inclusive world where that's, uh, where that's possible. I know we're all worried about that right now. Um, yeah. All right. Well, for the Road Home Podcast, this is Ethan McTurn. Thanks. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time. 